Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Derek McCollum. I'm the pastor here. If you're just here with us for the first time, we're very happy that you're here. Uh, I'd love to be able to meet you sometime. Maybe you can come grab me after the service. Uh, we are excited to be here this morning as we are every morning, but this is a special time where we get to celebrate the reason that we get together every week is that Jesus has died for our sins. He has been raised to new life and we get to celebrate that being raised because we will see him again someday and we will be raised like he is. We've been, if you've been with us, you know, we've been in the gospel of Mark since Christmas and we've been kind of traveling through Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is so exciting because he comes right out of the gate and announces who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's come to remove our sin, to die in our place, to be raised to new life. And now we get to finish that proclamation by actually seeing the witness of his resurrection. It's found in Mark chapter 16. So if you brought a Bible with you, you can flip it over to Mark chapter 16. It's also uh, printed in your worship bulletin. I will be reading verses one through eight. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And then looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large and entering the tomb. They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. But he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out from and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the witness of these three women. We're thankful for Mark for proclaiming these things for us. And Lord, we're thankful that you are still at work. And so we ask you to work in our hearts now. Soften them where we need to be softened. Open our ears and open our eyes so that we might see the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and why that is important for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. My father, uh, about 10 years ago or so, had open heart surgery. And, uh, you know, if you've ever gone through this process or had a loved one who has, you know, it's a pretty crazy, brutal process. They literally saw open your chest and work on your heart. He's fine. Everything went great. No complications at all. But if you've ever had this kind of thing done to you, you know that the doctors want to check in on you pretty regularly after that. And so my dad goes to see a cardiologist twice a year. And a couple of years ago, on one of those checkups, they said, we found something kind of interesting. Your heart is beating strong. It's just beating on the wrong beat. It's beating on the wrong rhythm, which for us was not really a surprise for my dad. He doesn't have very good rhythm. But the doctors were saying, we've got to do something about this. Your heart is at the wrong rhythm. And so it's not pumping the blood through your body the way it should. So what they did is something that was really Incredible. They literally shocked my father back 
to life. They rebooted him. They, they put him to sleep and then they hooked up some electricity to him and they shocked him. And when they shocked him, his heart started beating on the right beat. You know, when you have a computer problem and you call those high price geeks and they talk you through things. And at the end of your hour and a half of talking, they say, why don't you just turn off your computer and turn it back on? And then that's what fixes it. Turns out those people are doctors, too, because that's what they did to my dad. They rebooted him like a computer. Now, we live in a culture in which we get to celebrate the church's holidays, most of them, at least. Right. We celebrate Christmas in our culture. We celebrate Easter. My kids had off. Most of your kids had off for off of school for Good Friday. The rhythm of our culture kind of beats in some ways to the rhythm of the church. And in a lot of ways, that's a really good thing. But what can also happen when you live in a culture like ours is that your life, your heart, because it feels so similar, just starts beating to the rhythm of the culture rather than to the rhythm of the gospel. And we celebrate the celebrations, but sometimes forget why we're celebrating. And so something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus was hung on a cross, nailed there, died, stopped breathing, his heart stopped beating. He was put in a tomb and two days later got up and walked out of it. We somehow lose the importance of that incredible fact. Mark tells us that these women who witnessed this were amazed, astonished, shocked, even afraid. I wonder if we need to have a little dose of that this morning. To have the shocking news of the resurrection hit us upside the head in a way that it never has. To kind of shake us out of the rhythm that maybe our hearts have gotten into. Where we're... So much more accustomed to the Easter bunnies and the pretty hats and the flowers and the big meals, nice things, but they have made us numb to the resurrection, to the incredible truth and power and hope of what Jesus has done. Now, some of you may need that first part, that truth part. You may need to be shocked by the truth of the resurrection today. To be shocked and amazed and astonished to hear the angel say the same thing to you that he said to these women. He's not here. He's risen. Take a look and you can see the emptiness here and wait and see. You will see him again. We need to be shocked into believing that truth because, friends, the reality is this is big time stuff. It's pretty shocking reality. Christians for 2000 years, for more than that have been gathering together and celebrating something that really is pretty unbelievable. That Jesus actually died, that he actually then got up and was alive. We have built our confession on that. We just read 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul says, this is of first importance, that we know this, that Jesus died, that the scriptures have been proclaiming it forever, and that he rose the same thing the scriptures have been proclaiming forever. If you're struggling with that, I want to give you the words of Christopher Hitchens to help you. If you're a regular churchgoer, you may be thinking, why is Derek mentioning Christopher Hitchens in his sermon? Because Christopher Hitchens is a very famous atheist. In fact, he's not only an atheist, he's he's one of the leaders of the new atheist movement. He's written books, not just about the fact that there is no God, but really about 
that religion itself is one of the most damaging things in the world. That's what he believes. And Hitchens will go around and he will debate different Christian leaders. He'll do radio interviews and television interviews. And particularly when he comes out with a new book, he'll kind of go on tour. And on this tour a few years ago, he was interviewed by a woman named Marilyn Sewell. She is a Unitarian minister in Portland. And as they were having this interview and they were going through this discourse and Hitchens was kind of laying out everything that's terrible about the church and what religion has done uh, to, to really break the world apart. Sewell kind of paused him at one point. And she said, no, 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 hang on a second. You're normally debating, you know, conservative evangelical Christians, people that believe that the Bible is true, people that believe in things like the resurrection. She said, but I'm I'm a liberal Christian. I don't actually believe this stuff happened. I don't believe in things like the doctrine of the atonement. So surely there's a distinction, right? Surely the liberal Christians have it a little bit better and we're not the same as those conservative bad guys. And Hitchens said something pretty fabulous. He said, you know, if you don't believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, died for your sins and was raised to new life, then you really aren't in any meaningful sense a Christian. This is the atheist getting it right. Okay? And he is telling us, listen, if you're going to believe in this stuff, you've got to believe in it. It's real stuff. He knows the claims of Christ. And friends, if you are a Christian, that is what you believe. In fact, you can't be a Christian without believing that incredible fact. Now, think about it this way. I could, on the stand, if I brought up a jar filled it with marbles, I could go and say, okay, let's take some guesses on how many marbles are in this jar. And you each could kind of lodge a guess. Some would say 221. Someone else might say, no, no, 275. Another person would say 189. And you could all guess and one of you would be closer than the other. It's 142, by the way. Surprised you didn't know that. But the thing is, there's only one right answer. And One might be closer to that right answer, but there's a right answer. It's an objective truth. You can actually pour out the marbles out of the jar and count them and say, this is we know how many marbles are in that jar. That's objective reality. It's objective truth. Now, suppose I did something totally different, though, and I passed out Starburst to everyone. And everybody got a different flavor of Starburst. And then I said, okay, now which Starburst flavor is the right flavor? That's a different question altogether, isn't it? Because one person may like one Starburst flavor a lot more than another person may. Some people may not even like Starburst at all. If you've got braces, you're mad at me for even mentioning Starburst right now. But that's not objective truth. That's not objective reality. That's personal preference. I like the strawberry. No, no. I like the banana. Do they even make banana Starburst? I don't think they do. Orange, whatever it is, right? It's personal preference. Well, what's happened in our culture, again, this is fascinating. Even as our culture has adapted in many ways to the calendar of the church, we've also taken any kind of religious discussion out of the first category, objective truth, and we've placed it into the second category, my own personal preference. And so we've said, listen, this is what I believe is true, but what you think is true can also be true because it's about preference. It's not about objective reality. But friends, when Mary, the mother of James and Mary Magdalene and Salome, when these three women showed up to the tomb early that first Easter morning, 
They were not there to debate subjective discussions about religion. They were not there to engage in some sort of uh, idea that, you know what, it's really just about kind of the concept of, of, of uh, resurrection and new life and the fact that everybody can change. That's not what they were there for. They were there to bring spices and ointments to anoint a dead man so that his body wouldn't rot quite as fast. And what they found was an objective reality that blew their minds. In fact, again, Mark tells us their emotions and it's astonishment. It is utter, you know, angst. They flee because they're afraid. Because the truth, the objective reality, the truth of the resurrection has hit them smack in the face. Maybe that's you this morning. And you need to be surprised, shocked even, by the truth of the resurrection. That Jesus actually did what he said he was going to do. That afterwards, hundreds of people saw him. That thousands of people then staked their lives on this claim. That the church grew and that this wildfire has has blown throughout the whole world. That millions of people around the globe and throughout history have said, it's this event that has changed the world. It's not a concept. It's a real fact. Do you need to be shocked by that this morning? And amazed and astonished? Do you need to hear the angel say to you, he's not here, he is risen? Look at the emptiness. Wait, find him again. Maybe that's where you need to be shocked this morning, to have the truth of the resurrection shock your heart back to life. Or maybe it's something different. Maybe for you, you don't have a hard time believing in that truth. But you need to be shocked into seeing the power of Jesus's resurrection. Shocked into seeing why it really matters then that Jesus has risen from the dead. Some of us, especially those who are raised in church, who are regular churchgoers, we can kind of follow this certain rhythm that we get into. It's a habit, but it's not that our hearts have fallen into disbelief. It's just that they've kind of fallen into the rhythm of cynicism or detachment in some way. Listen, if I'm honest with myself, this is what I struggle with, too is that I can kind of just go along through life in this just kind of pragmatic belief that says I'll just float along and I'll be okay, but there's no real joy. There's no deep understanding that drives me. There's simply just kind of a flatlining. Maybe that's you today as well. I heard a great story about a, an Italian pastor who was visiting a graveyard one time. And you could imagine in Italy the graveyard was pretty old. And he came upon this one grave and he saw that there was this enormous stone slab put over the grave. The man who was buried there apparently did not like Christianity, but was also a little bit afraid of it. Because there was an inscription on the stone slab that said something like, I don't want to be raised. I don't believe it. I'm putting this slab here so that it won't happen. But evidently, something else had happened when he was buried. An acorn must have fallen into the grave. Because a hundred years later, there was an oak tree that had grown up and split that thing in half. And this towering oak tree hanging over this grave, almost looking down and saying, like, okay, let's see what you think about it now. The truth is, is that 
When you accept Jesus as your personal savior, when you turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit fills you and the power of Jesus's resurrection fills your heart is that the power of Jesus's resurrection is actually available to us as well. And it can split a number of big stone slabs like the stone slab of bitterness or of detachment or of insecurity or of fear or whatever it is. Fill in the blank in your life. What are those things for you? The Apostle Paul, the same one who wrote the letter to First uh, Corinthians, the letter to Corinth, also wrote a letter to uh, a church in Ephesus. We studied, if you were with us, we studied the book of Ephesians not long ago. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul just relays some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. This sentence that seems to go on forever, expounding what is true about Christians because what Jesus has done. That we have been adopted that we have been brought into his family, that we have been given an inheritance, that we have been chosen, that we have been made new. And he goes on and on and on. And then at the end of the chapter, he pauses and he breaks into prayer. And you know what he prays? He prays, Lord, let the eyes of their hearts be opened so that they would see the, that they would see the hope to which you've called them. That they would see the inheritance that they have in the saints. And then here's the third one. He says that they would know the power of the resurrection. That they would know that the power that is at work in them, in us, is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's good news, friends. That the power that raised Jesus to new life is also at work in us. If you are struggling with repetitive sins, if you are struggling with even just a feeling of guilt and shame, this is good news for you. In fact, let me just hone in on, on that little category today. If that's you, I want to show you something really pretty amazing. If, if you've come here and you've said, listen, the thing that probably defines my life the most is the word guilt. And it's kept you away from God and it's kept you away from his people And you've thought, you know what, I don't really even want to come and be close to God or close to church or anything like that, because then I've got to deal with this thing that always is in the back of my head, this underlying feeling that there's something about me that makes me not enough. I want you to listen to this verse seven. Listen to what the angel says. But go, he tells the women, go tell Jesus's disciples and Peter, go tell Jesus's disciples. And then he singles one of them out. Tell Jesus' disciples and specifically tell Peter what you've seen. Why would Jesus single Peter out? Why would Jesus say, there's this one disciple I want you to make sure you go and tell this to? Well, what's the last thing that we've read about Peter in the Gospel of Mark? If you remember it, you remember that Jesus, after he is taken by the Roman soldiers and he's being tried, is that three times Peter is approached by someone who comes and says, you look a lot like one of the guys that used to hang around with this man. You're one of his disciples, right? And Peter will say, no, I'm not. I don't even know him. I don't even know him. Get away from me. Three times he will deny even knowing Jesus. And the last thing that we actually see from Peter is that we see him down with his head in his hands and he's weeping. He's feeling the guilt and the shame of denying Christ. And he's crying. That's the last thing that we've seen from Peter. Isn't this beautiful? That Jesus would pass along this message to the angel, tell the disciples to go tell everyone, but specifically, 
Go find Peter. He's the one that needs to hear it the most. That is the kindness of our Savior. Who will come and say, if you are struggling with guilt, if you are struggling with this idea of shame, I want you to know that I am enough. That my death is for you. That my resurrection is for you. It is in me that you can come and lay all of your guilt and all of your shame and I will take it. Friends, if that's you this morning, let me invite you to be shocked, to be astonished at the kindness, at the power of the resurrection available to you. All right, here's the third and final thing. I think we need to see the truth. We need to be shocked by the truth of the resurrection, also by its power. But then also this, we need to be shocked by the hope of the resurrection today. We need to be shocked by the hope that we are receiving. Now, if you've been reading this story, and especially if you've kind of been reading through Mark, and you come to this ending, the thing that may shock you the most, actually, is that the way that this gospel ends. I mean, how did I end my reading? I just said, and the women were super afraid, and they didn't say anything to anyone. This brings up actually a very interesting point that we need to talk about. There are some verses after this that are listed probably in your Bible. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, it probably has a note that says that the verses 9 through 20 are not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now, what that means simply is what it says, is that when we have done the research and we have found the manuscripts that seem to be closest to what Mark originally wrote, that they stop at verse 8. That Mark actually stops his gospel with this very ambiguous ending. That doesn't necessarily mean that those other verses are not true. It just means that probably they were added by someone else later. Now, why would anybody else come in and add something to that ending? Well, I have a guess. It's because we don't like ambiguous endings, do we? Those things just don't feel good to us. We don't like cliffhanger endings. There's a new Avengers movie coming out soon. You've pro- you probably don't know that. And it's coming out to great acclaim. And so many people are so excited about it. And one reason they're so excited is because the last Avengers movie had this super ambiguous ending. It was a cliffhanger. Thousands of people left that movie thinking like, wait a minute, what just happened? Like, did the bad guy just win? Did that really just happen? I don't know what to do with that. That's a hard place for us. We don't like ambiguous cliffhanger kind of endings, do we? We oftentimes don't really know what to do about them. But what I want to tell you this morning is that this ending, the ending at verse 8, is encouraging. This is the ending that we need that will instill hope in us. And here's why. Is that we're here right now. It is 2019. We're in Texas More than 2,000 years and a 15-hour plane ride from where Jesus was died and was buried and rose. And friends, we are here this morning proclaiming that he did. See, we're evidence to the fact that it didn't end there. That it didn't end just simply with women sitting down and crying and being afraid and not telling anyone. We know they did because we're here. We know that they told the disciples. We know that they told the world. We know that that little spark was fanned into a flame because we are here. That is hope. And that is the same reason then that we can even hope for the future. See, Jesus' resurrection, what Jesus did, shows us that he is going to do what he's doing. 
The truth of what Jesus did shows us what he is doing. Jesus was made new, and that actually gives us hope that he is making all things new. We live in the time in between, right? We live in the proclamation of that goodness and before the end of it. Although we've seen the trailer, we know what's going to happen, but we live in that time in between. But listen to this, please, very clearly. Jesus' resurrection is actually a promise to us that things will not always be the way that they are now. What Jesus' resurrection means is that bitterness and insecurity and adultery and abuse and uh, cynicism and absence and, uh, and chemical dependency and emotional manipulation will one day not be here. We will not struggle with our sin. We will not be selfish. We will not say words that we wish we hadn't said. We will not pursue the wrong desires. We will not have broken families. We will not have broken relationships. We will never have our hearts broken. We will never mourn. We will never cry. That's the promise that we have. And it's what Jesus has done that promises us what he is doing. It gives us that hope. Let me just leave you with this question. Where is it today that you need to be astonished, shocked, alarmed? Where do you need to hear the angel saying directly to you, he's not here, he's risen. You can take a look at the evidence. You can wait for his return. Do you need to know the truth of that this morning? Do you need to know its power? Do you need to be encouraged by its hope? Because friends, this is actually what brings dead people back to life. This is the news, the proclamation that shocks us back to life, that gets our hearts back on the right rhythm so that we might actually beat to the good news of the gospel. That's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray now. Lord, thank you for uh, the, the promise of what is to come based on the reality of what has been done. We thank you for your resurrection and we thank you, Lord, that you have even brought us into resurrection life because of it. We thank you for the new life that we get to celebrate here and now, for the new life that we then get to proclaim in all that we do, and for the new life, Lord, that we will see one day when you return. Lord, will you readjust our hearts that they might beat to that rhythm now? I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.